So let me pray for you a moment before you start. Father, we thank you, Lord, for uh, the blessing that Mike is to us, to his ministry, to his family. And we just pray, Lord God, that we would just be open to receive all that you have in store for us through speaking through this man of God. Just pray, Lord God, that you would be in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, and it's lovely to be uh, with you again here at uh, Weymouth Baptist Church, and uh, thank you to those of you who pray for us uh, regularly and for our Eagles Wings uh, Ministries. For those who don't know about uh, Eagles Wings Ministries, uh, we uh, set it up uh, some years back now. It's about 11, 12 years that it's been going, and uh, a ministry uh, that comes alongside uh, church leaders uh, in this country, um, to be supportive, a listening ear um, for them, um, a preaching ministry, and then a ministry of teaching church leaders uh, overseas. And uh, after a number of years of visits to India, the focus over the last few years has been more in Africa, in uh, Uganda, in Kenya, in Rwanda, and in South Africa. And uh, earlier this year, in January, had uh, visits uh, down to uh, Kigali, the capital, and down to uh, Changuku in the southwest uh, for teaching uh, church leaders there. Really exciting things going on right down in the very southwest of, uh, of uh, Rwanda. Um, the, uh, there's very few um, denominations other than the Anglican Church, which is very, very evangelical down there, and uh, in many ways quite charismatic as well. And uh, they're seeing uh, enormous church growth. Between March last year and January this year, they planted no fewer than 10 new churches. Uh, they're growing at, at a real pace. And so we're privileged to be paying, playing a small part in helping to train further leaders. And uh, Angie and I were down there in uh, July in uh, Kigali, uh, the invitation uh, of the, the Bishop of Kigali to uh, lead a conference on marriage and family life for the pastors and uh, their wives, and uh, been invited to go uh, again next year. The value prayer for January uh, that's just coming up, January 6th, um, fly down to uh, um, Rwanda again with a colleague, and we have uh, two weeks right down in the southwest in Changugu, and uh, we're training trainers this time. Um, so uh, that they would then be able to, in turn, train church leaders. So uh, we value prayer for that. And uh, also, very particularly, that uh, I'm scheduled to go over the border into the Democratic Republic of Congo um, to uh, Bukavu. Uh, it's very close by. It's uh, a bit like going, say, from here to Preston. Um, uh, it's, it's really close. Um, but at the moment, there's an amber travel alert on it, but my travel insurance will still cover me to go. But if it turns to red, then that puts uh, an end to going across, and we'll bring the folk over to Changugu. But we just ask prayer, please, for final preparations for that, and uh, God's hand on the, uh, on the visit. Um, but uh, great opportunities uh, in uh, an exciting uh, situation um, uh, down there. So the focus that I felt right to bring this morning is a good hope. 
and I realise I haven't put the question mark on because it's designed to be a question mark to start with. A good hope, with pictures of the, uh, of, of the cape by that name. So called because uh, when sailors would uh, head south uh, into the South Atlantic and then go right round the, the south of uh, South Africa and uh, then head uh, east, um, because the waters were so stormy, to get round you know, into calmer water, it uh, got the name, if I remember correctly, of the Cape of Good Hope, that things would be better round there. But I want to focus in Luke's Gospel. If you have your Bibles, turn, please, if you would, to Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. It's a great song of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Remember that uh, uh, Zechariah, when the, the angel came to him and said, uh, you know, your um, wife's going to have uh, a son, he's going to be a great prophet. And uh, he said, you know, how, do, how do I know that this is going to happen? And he said, you know, because you haven't believed, you're going to be uh, um, unable to speak until the day he's born. And it was when uh, he was asked, uh, after the birth of John the Baptist, what is his name? He says, John. And his, uh, his voice came back. And it's wonderful song. And uh, in a sense, it's a prelude to Christmas. But it's a great song of remembrance. It's a great song of hope. So his father, that is John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. A good hope. The uh, headlines, the, was it yesterday or day before, of the young 14-year-old girl who died of cancer. And uh, she wanted her body to be frozen so uh, cryonics or cryo cryogenics, that's uh, uh, freezing a body with the hope that then uh, in uh, years to come there will be the way of, uh, as it were, defrosting those bodies uh, because they found a cure for the illness for which the person died. And uh, 
you can understand perhaps the feelings of the girl, not wanting to die and yet knowing that she's going to die, and so quite fancies the idea of being frozen and uh, that then being woken up when there is a cure for her cancer. And the Guardian online, the headline was cryonics. Does it offer humanity a chance to return from the dead? A good hope? There was uh, one uh, professor um, speaking, uh, was interviewed. I can't remember where he was from. But he just raised the question, so is it going to be that great maybe to wake up in 300 years' time? You, you imagine that if uh, you had died uh, you know, nearly 400 years ago, and then you wake up in the 1930s, just heading up to the Second World War, that be such a good hope, a realisation of it? I mean, ultimately, it seems to me that it's almost the perfect scam is cryogenics because people put a lot of money into having their bodies frozen or the bodies of their loved ones frozen. Um, but who's going to be around to actually say you didn't deliver on what you were, you, you were promising? And a very expensive scam at that. And I'm not knocking the young girl because it was tragic, absolutely tragic. But perhaps what was even more tragic was that this was the best hope that maybe she could feel that there was. That same uh, um, article, uh, it went uh, on, part of the, the article said, based on 50,000 years of human history, however, age and infirmity will sooner or later do for you. Except maybe they won't. A few scientists and a lot of wishful thinkers believe it may be possible to defeat the ageing process. This is the world's most important problem. According to Aubrey de Grey, Chief Science Officer of the US's SENS Research Foundation, other bodies working in the area include, and I like this, the Methuselah Foundation, which reckons that by 2030, 90-year-olds can be as healthy as 50-year-olds are today. A good, a good hope? Sorry, I didn't move that on. The uh, philosopher, <coughs> French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, wrote back in 1980. He wrote on the subject of despair and hope. With this third world war, which might break out one day, with this wretched gathering which our planet now is, despair returns to tempt me. The idea that there is no purpose, only petty personal ends for which we fight. We make little revolutions, but there is no goal for mankind. One cannot think such things. They tempt you incessantly, especially if you're old, and I think, oh well, I'll be dead in five years at the most. In fact, I think ten, but it might well be five. In any case, the world seems ugly, bad, and without hope. There, that's the cry of despair of an old man who will die in despair. Here is an atheist facing up to the reality of atheism. But... That's exactly what I resist. I know I shall die in hope. But that hope needs a foundation. 
And Michael Green, who quotes him in his little book about the resurrection, the day death died, just simply adds the comment to, but hope needs a foundation. He just comments, it does indeed. And you see, that's the problem as to whether there is a good hope or no hope. Does it have a foundation? And so we look in this passage at the root of hope, a complex root. It isn't just like a single tap root, but a root that spreads out in this wonderful passage. You see the hope that is that of Zechariah. It is indeed more than a good hope. You see, first, it's rooted in God himself. See, in verse 67, he was filled with the Holy Spirit with Zechariah. And so here is a spirit-filled prophecy. Here's spirit-filled proclamation and worship. And he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. And you see, those uh, four words, the God of Israel, are packed They're absolutely pregnant with meaning. That for somebody who says the God of Israel, it brings the whole span of Israel history, the history of the people of God, all summed up in those four words. The God of Israel, the God who delivered Noah um, from from the flood, the God who called Abraham, the God who called Isaac, the God who called Jacob, and then after his wrestling brought him to the name Israel. And God's dealing with Israel right the way throughout history. And it's how God revealed himself to his people throughout all those centuries. God revealing himself um, as he is. In the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, over 160 times he says, I am the Lord. And in connection with that are his actions and his words. His actions uh, in, uh, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In the giving of the commandments, I am the Lord, I am the Lord your God. God revealing himself, his true nature, through his actions and through his words. We're not left to try and devise what kind of God do we believe in. But he's a God who's made himself known throughout history in both actions and words, and we have those for, uh, for us today in, uh, in the Bible. <clears throat> and in the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews says that uh, you know, in various ways, many in various ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. You know, as it were, the decisive word that reveals the nature of God, the decisive person who reveals God in a way that we can know him, and there won't be a lot left in any doubts, is the person of our Lord Jesus. And the statement that Jesus made was absolutely preposterous and outrageous, or else it's true, it can't be halfway. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The root of hope is in this God himself. And it's rooted also in the word of God. In verse uh, 70, he uh, says, uh, uh, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. 
You see, Zechariah was rooted in the Word of God. It was part of him. It wasn't as though the Word of God was there and he was here. That which he had studied, that which he'd heard, that which he had read, it had become part of him, shaped and fashioned his life, shaped and fashioned his memory. Saying just recently that I think that one of the things that we're not good at these days is memorizing Scripture. And how the Holy Spirit then brings that which we have uh, absorbed to mind at just the moment that we need it. Perhaps when we're going through a crisis, when we're going through an intense temptation. You have the Spirit of God bringing the Word of God to bear. And we see in Zechariah that you know, the Word of God has shaped and fashioned who he is and uh, what, he is, uh, what he is now saying. It was through the prophets long ago that God promised that there would be yeah, salvation. And that um, uh, really impacted him. It is an abiding truth for all time. The abiding truth about God. The abiding truth about Jesus. The abiding truth about us, about our human nature. And it's that that we struggle with at times because we don't like being told the truth about ourselves. Anything, you know, but please don't actually confront us you know, with, a, with, a, with a real kind of mirror um, uh, yeah, image. You know, something worse than a mirror image is actually seeing yourself on television. When we were in Jersey, I did uh, quite a bit of radio work, which is great. I enjoyed that. But then a number of times, um, either interviews or they had on uh, channel um, uh, television in the Channel Islands, um, on Sunday it was like a, th- uh, a thought for the week, but actually on television. And uh, you kind of see yourself as you really are. Um, you know, it's not kind of turned around, it's how you know, other people are seeing you. And uh, you know, it can be scary. And the Bible shows us who we are and just as we are. It's truthful. But again, in the news this week, what did we hear? The latest word to be added to the Oxford Dictionary? Post-truth. We live in a post-truth society. Well, that actually isn't anything new, and the idea of post-truth isn't anything new. After all, Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, and what is truth? Questioning the very nature of what truth really is. And for quite some years now, I'd say probably for about the last 15, 20 years, we've lived in a society where feelings are more important than truth. If it feels good, do it. You know, not as to whether this is true or isn't true. Does it work is another important question. Not, you know, is it true? And in a sense, the epitome of our society was both the referendum uh, uh, campaign and then the American election. If you want to know what post-truth looks like, look at the referendum campaign and look at the United States uh, election campaign. And you have there, I believe, an absolute uh, illustration of what post-truth means. Truth does not matter. And now you kind of see uh, uh, Mitt Romney 
being uh, um, hosted uh, by, by Donald Trump, and the query is, is he going to become you know, Secretary of State? Yeah, Romney having said, you know, basically, you know, he's a bully, um, and uh, you know, what he says is, is as worthless as a degree from Trump University. And then the thought of working together, you know, was he wrong? Was he, was he being economical with the truth? Yeah, what kind of example have we set to our young people, both with that and with the referendum campaign? But it's the outworking of a post-truth society. But it goes back, those of uh, you of a, of a certain age will remember Roxy music. And there was a song, It Ain't Necessarily So. And they'd go through a whole load of things, including the Bible, you know, just because it's there, it ain't necessarily so. That is post-truth. So what or who can you believe? If you're questioning everything, you deconstruct history. In other words, you know, okay, we've read the history books, but did that really happen? Was it really like that? And then you start to reconstruct in a way that you feel actually suits the situation and suits your own thinking better. You see, it's about airbrushing of reality so that it uh, suits our comfort. In reality, it's like trying to uh, hold a fluffy cloud and to snuggle into it. You know, sometimes when I'm flying, and particularly when you're not kind of too high, but you're above a massive cloud and it's all kind of lovely and fluffy, you think, wouldn't it be lovely to jump out the, the, uh, the aircraft and bounce around on all those lovely clouds? But the reality would be different. You'd plummet. There'd be nothing to take hold of. You'd put your arms out and think, this is a lovely cloud, it's so fluffy. Wouldn't it be lovely to kind of hug it and you'd take that and you'd actually end up with nothing. You'd be falling. And post-truth is like that. What do you hold on to? Is there anything to hold on to? No, it's like the cloud. It's an illusion. There is nothing there. And that then gives problems of direction, of values, of meaning, of purpose, of future, and of hope. You see, the past, <clears throat> and this was true for Zechariah, the past can inform and grow both faith and hope. You see it in the Psalms, you know, when uh, uh, David's going through tough times. You know, I look back and I think, God, what, who you are. I think about what you have done, how you've made yourself known. And that you know, stabilizes faith. It grows the faith and gives confidence for the future. So in the present and then shapes direction for the, uh, the future. <clears throat> so it's rooted in the word of God. Now, a whole kind of series of talks on, the, you know, can we trust the Bible? Um, you know, that's not for this morning. It would take far too long. But ultimately, yeah, absolutely I believe we can, compared with many, many other documents of history. It has the best pedigree. But the root of hope is, uh, thirdly, in the faithfulness of God. In verse 72, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Love the first time that the word remember comes in scripture. 
God remembered Noah. Good job locked up with all those animals. And then he puts the rainbow in the sky. Why does he do that? So that Noah will remember the covenant that God has made. No. When I see it, says God, I will remember my covenant. Isn't that incredible? You know, we see the rainbow and we kind of perhaps remember you know, what God has promised. But in fact, the rainbow, God says, I put it in the sky to remind me of the covenant that I have made with all humankind, with all living creatures. The faithfulness of God goes all the way, right the way back to remember his holy covenant. And you see, if the past is not true, if there is no truth, no concept of truth that lasts, then there is nothing from the past that we can either learn and nothing from the, tr- the past that can actually be a foundation for the present or for the future. But you see, when we go through scripture, we see how God has shown that truth abides and we see his faithfulness in his actions and uh, in his words. He promised and he delivered. He promised and he still delivers and will do till the day that the Lord Jesus returns again in power and in glory. The root of hope, the faithfulness of God. And when that hope needs uh, renewing, you see, there are times when we're going through tough times. And uh, in Lamentations, we have such an experience. And we read, I remember my affliction, my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. You know that experience? When your soul is downcast, maybe this morning even, Maybe this week you've been through a tough time and you're feeling downcast. Yet, notice that important word, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. You see, his past experience of God's faithfulness is what strengthens him in this time where my soul is downcast. And sometimes you know, we're in situations where we feel that it's kind of you know, the white knuckle stuff. It's kind of the, the edge of the fingernail stuff where we're clinging on because of what we're experiencing, and yet, this I call to mind. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. How did he know that? Because he had proved it in his experience. He'd seen it in the history of his people. You see, there was objective truth on which he could rely, objective truth that was not simply theory, but had been borne out in practice. And without that, where is hope? We have a friend, uh, 
um, whose uh, wife died just uh, recently. Both strong atheists. And uh, he chose not to have any ceremony whatsoever. Said goodbye in hospital, and, uh, and that, was, that was it. And uh, chatting to him, you know, all that is left are the memories, because there is nothing else. You know, the outworking of atheistic belief. And in a sense, yeah, I respect him greatly. He's a, a lovely friend. But I feel so much. Yeah, that's it, as far you know, as he's concerned. Yeah, all there is is the memory and then <laughs> nothing. But is that based on truth? Is it based on post-truth? If it's post-truth, how can you be sure that your atheism is right? And then the root of hope is in the mercy and in the grace of God. Look at verses 72 to 74, where he says, To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You see, here is God's mercy, here is God's grace in the face of failure. You know, Zechariah can sing this song knowing the history of Israel that had not exactly been the purest. Why did they go into exile, both Israel and then Judah? Because of continued disobedience. To God's word. Of knowing what God wanted for them, the privileges that he had given to them, and yet they had effectively thrown them back in his face, and so to exile they went. First of all in Assyria, and then in Babylon. Seventy years away. And yet, God still maintained a remnant. There was mercy. There was grace even in the face of such huge failure. There is never a hopeless case in our failure, and sometimes we feel it, and Satan certainly loves to say, Mike, you're a failure. How could you do that, say that, think that, and then stand up and preach? Useless. Hopeless. No, not with God. I love that line in the song of Graham Kendricks. He turns our weaknesses into his opportunities. He turns our failures into his opportunities. You think of Peter, you think of Paul. How Peter could have been spiritually paralysed by his abject failure. I don't know the man. I tell you, I've never seen him. I don't belong to him. I swear to you. This man is nothing to me. And after the resurrection, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me, really love me? Feed my sheep. You see, even with Peter, there was not just a a wiping um, away. You're useless. 
You, know, you think of the first um, Easter evening, and they're all gathered there in the upper room, and Jesus comes and stands amongst them, and he looks at them all and says, you know, what a crowd. Where were you when I needed you? No, not at all. What does he say? He comes and he says, peace be with you. That's mercy, that's grace. Paul, the greatest persecutor of the church, you know, he could have looked back and beheld by his shame and his guilt, especially when he was there at the martyrdom of Stephen. And yet, knowing the fullness of God's mercy and of God's grace, he was released into being such a great evangelist, such a missionary. <coughs> My dear friends, is there something that's holding you this morning? You just need to know that mercy and that grace of God, turning your failure into a new strength, turning your weakness into his opportunity. Seek prayer this morning. Don't leave without actually doing something about that. To receive again, as it were, a whole bath, a whole shower in the mercy and in the grace of God. Kendrick goes on and he captures Colossians 1, chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 27, wonderfully. Rejoice, rejoice. Christ is in you, the hope of glory in your hearts, in our hearts. Amen? Haven't sung that for donkey's years. But what powerful biblical truth. Rejoice. Rejoice. Christ is in you. Looking at you, it seems like it's (laughs) post-truth. But you see, that is the most momentous truth. Christ is in you. If you know him and you are in Christ, he is in you by his spirit. You are his. He has his stamp of ownership all over you. There is the hope of glory. It's about that intimate, personal relationship with Christ, knowing him as Saviour and as Lord. (coughs) And then interestingly, the root of hope is in the mission of God. If you look at verse uh, 73, when he says, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, what was that oath? Through you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. Through your seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. What was that seed? It is Paul who tells us the seed. It wasn't Isaac. It was going right through Isaac, right the way through to Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3. That seed was Christ. How is the world to be, all the world to be blessed? How is that promise to be fulfilled? It is through Jesus. And through the proclaiming of the gospel... And so it brings us to our share in local mission, in world mission, and through our, what I term, missional discipleship. At um, Dorchester Baptist Church at the moment, we're going through a series which is entitled Living Questionable Lives, which you could take two ways. But it's designed to be focusing, it's it's from a book by, by Michael Frost, which is, is looking at how do we have lives that actually make people ask questions about our faith. What is it that makes you tick? What is it that makes you, uh, uh, you know, behave like that? What is it that makes you different in the right kind of way? 
That's missional discipleship. Living out where we are in our communities, in our place of work, in our homes, in uh, uh, clubs that we may belong to. That's where we um, show our discipleship. And it's where we point others in a hopeless world to a place where there is true hope. In a few weeks' time, we shall no doubt sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. We could just as easily sing hope to the world because that hope is in him. And so the the, uh, root of hope is Jesus. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star, we're told in Revelation 22. Verse 78 here also makes it clear that about this rising sun, that is Jesus promised. It's a messianic term. Here is uh, that hope. It's in Jesus. Jesus, the root, the eternal son of God, pre-existent of David by all eternity, and the offspring of David, born of David's line. So the root of hope is Jesus himself. And he is also the anchor of our hope. In Hebrews six nineteen to 20 we read, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary where Jesus has entered on our behalf. Picture of the temple, picture of the, or of the, uh, uh, and of the tabernacle, the, the place, the holy of holies, the place of meeting between God and man. Picture is of Jesus going right there to stand on our behalf. An anchor for the soul because of his death and because of his resurrection. Remember the old hymn, we have an anchor? Yeah, that keeps the soul... Carry on, please. Just about there, I think. Yeah, anchored firm and deep in the Saviour's love. Have you got that anchor of hope this morning? Is it a hope that you were looking for? It's certainly a hope that that teenage girl needed. I just feel so much. You see, so often our hopes are fixed purely on temporal things, on things that are kind of the here and now. Whether it be from something like the weather, or the hopes for our children or grandchildren, legitimate and right hopes that we have. Yeah, hopes in terms of uh, recovery from an illness. Absolutely, we share those. But you see, the greater hope is one is for eternity. And Billy Graham said something along these lines, that those who have actually spent more time thinking about the hope of eternity are ones who have actually che- achieved more yet here and now. Because it hasn't just been about pie in the sky when we die. It has influenced how we live because of our thankfulness and our assurance. And so it has implications right down into the nitty-gritty of everyday life. 
and the fulfilment of hope. Paul writes about a lot about hope in Romans 8, about the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And it's all because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We have this sure and we have this certain hope. And a hope that is guaranteed to us. Not a good hope, but the best, sure and certain hope. And uh, hope does not disappoint us. Sorry, I've got the wrong uh, uh, quote on the bottom there. It should be Romans 5, verse 5. Hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit he has given us. And in that passage, Paul isn't talking about, you know, just kind of hope that comes lightly. Because that verse follows on from saying this. And uh, we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. You what? Only somebody like Paul could write that because he had the credentials, the experience. And what was his experience? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit he has given us. Yeah, there is so much around and so much in personal conversations that seems to lack hope. And we're agents of hope. We have the greatest hope that there ever has been. The gospel. Our Lord Jesus. And so to live questionable lives that people will want to say, so what is that hope that you have in you? Why are you hopeful when we kind of look at so many things in the world? It's not because we're escapists. It's not because we're fantasists. It's because of how we have known what God has done in the past. His faithfulness, his word, his mercy, his grace, his character himself, but supremely because of Jesus. That's what we celebrate as we come now to communion. Remember all that he has done for us at the cross, and through his resurrection. If the cross was it, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Yeah, the cross where he took our sin, but the empty cross, because he is a risen and a living Lord. Where's your hope today? How are you this morning? Struggling maybe within your soul? Life's circumstances seem to be pretty torrid right at this minute. Whatever. Whether you are rejoicing or whether you're right down. Here again, this hope that we have in Jesus. A hope that not only focuses for eternity, 
that then gives us courage, strength, because Christ is in you for today, for first thing Monday morning and Tuesday, each and every day. May we be renewed in that glorious hope because of our relationship with Jesus. Let's be still just for a few moments. And then we are going to uh, break bread together.